I wonder to myself at times, do I have that kind of experience where that realization that Jesus really was God, this encounter with God that was so tangible and so real in my life that it was so powerful that I could come to a place where if Jesus just said, come follow me, leave these things behind and come follow, that I would be able to go. What was it that the disciples experienced that allowed them to take that kind of risk? What was it that unlocked it? You know, when we read a little bit um, in a different gospel in John uh, 14.6, we see perhaps a glimpse or some insight and into what compelled the disciples in this kind of way. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, when this truth showed up and into these fishermen's life, he says, this truth is the way, this truth is the life. In other words, it somehow unlocked something inside of them that they knew there must be something truer about my life, about who I am, about my existence, about my purpose, about my significance, than what I am currently doing now. There must be something truer than this. They felt like everything else was two-dimensional. Everything else, everyone else is doing and they're living and it's fine. But they felt like there's something more to their life than simply just existing. See, this is why when Jesus comes, he begins, or this encounter with Jesus, it often begins with this unlocking of life, this glimmer of something more. There must be something more than what I'm just experiencing right now. In John's account, in John 1.42, he provides a little bit of insight into Peter's life. Here in Matthew, we just see that Jesus said to Peter and his brother Andrew, come and follow me, and they left the nurse and follow. But in John chapter 1, verse 42, he gives a little bit of insight of what happened in that interaction that allowed Peter to lay down everything to follow. Because as soon as Jesus found Peter, this is what Jesus said to Peter, you are Simon, son of John. In other words, this is your world reality. You are born from John, and your name given is Simon. In other words, the way that you live is you're living through your parents, your, your family lineage, you have your job, you have your career, you have your, uh, your group of friends. This is Simon. You are Simon. The world has assigned you as Simon. This is the life that you have. But then Jesus says this, but I tell you, your truer name, who you really are, is not just that, not just occupying space and time in, this, in, in human history. Who you are is Cephas. Who you are is Petros or Peter. And he explains it later on in John where he says what, what he means by this is you are a rock. And based on this testimony that you will give, this answer that you give to the question, who is Jesus? He says, I will build my church. Your life will be that kind of foundation that on your testimony, Peter, this church will be built. You know, brothers and sisters, when we look at our own lives, sometimes we wonder, is there more? Is there more compelling to my life than simply just existing and living and going through that human cycle? And what Jesus points out to Peter, why Peter laid down everything for the first time 
what he, what lied dormant inside of his spirit, inside of his mind, that when Jesus came and said, you are Cephas, even though you were known as Simon, it awakened something in his, in his spirit, in his mind, that he realized, oh my goodness, this is it. This is it. You know, there are, I don't have that kind of power. I remember, you know, meeting up with uh, some uh, younger people, and asking them, hey, what do you enjoy about life? Or, you know, how are you enjoying the life that you're living? And they'd be saying, I'm happy, right? I have a great job. You know, I have a great girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife, right? I have a great house, great family and everything. And I would ask them, did you ever consider there must be something more? And so I have two best friends. And these two best friends, you know, they're casually Christian, but, you know, it's just by namesake. And whenever we have these kind of coffee moments um, uh, with them, I ask them the question, did you ever consider, there must be something more, right? It has to be just more than just church. And they look at me with a straight face and they say, nope, <laughs> I'm just happy, right? I'm just happy the way it is. And so obviously I don't have that same unlocking ability that Jesus has, but we've all thought about it. We all feel it. There must be something more. And this is what Jesus drew out of Peter. You know, the truth that pulls us, it not only pulls out this new identity in us, but it also pulls out of us a new reality by which we live by. We begin to see, here's our old world in which we live and how everything makes sense, and here's a different world, this world of what can be, this world of what Jesus is announcing when he says, my kingdom has come. What is this new world? And we begin to live by that new reality. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 to 13 together. In Matthew 9, 9 to 13, look at a different calling that happens with Matthew. As Jesus went up from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see a similar scene. Matthew does the exact same thing. As Jesus went to these fishermen and said, come follow me, and they all followed, and Peter followed, and we got some insight into Peter, this calling out, this truth that pulled out his truer identity. This is what you are made for. This is who you are. This is your significance. And then for Matthew, we see a similar occasion where he goes to the tax collector booth, and he says to Matthew, come follow me, and Matthew leaves that booth and follows. But then we see a response from Matthew, an immediate response from Matthew that we don't see in the other disciples. Immediately what he does is he gathers all of his other tax collector friends and people that the Jewish community would consider sinners. 
people who don't live rightly, people who are veering away from God, and he gathers them together and into his own home. Now, a little bit of insight into Matthew to understand why this is significant. Matthew was Jewish, and being Jewish, him collecting taxes for the Roman government was considered treacherous. It was considered, you are a traitor to our own people. How could you do that? And so, as Matthew, he already has this kind of like uh, weight that is on him that feels like, yeah, no one from my own community accepts me. They all hate me. They all despise me. But what am I going to do? This is the only way that I know how to make money. What else what we see with, with Matthew is you would consider Matthew being Jewish and knowing that there's this Christianity or this Judaism that he can follow, this God that the rest of the Jewish people say, we need to believe that, not in the emperor. But when he looks at it, and he looks at the systems that are set up, and he sees the Pharisees, he realizes that these ultra-religious people that the rest of his people group are saying, this is what we need to become, or this is what we need to thrive for, he says, I don't like that reality. Why would I want to live my life with that burden? When I look at the Pharisees, I see them creating all these laws, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. All these burdens that they place on people, you have to be this kind of like self-righteous, always doing all these good things, but you get nothing out of it. He looks at their lives and he says, you put all of this responsibility and all these burdens on people with all these rules, what you should and shouldn't do, and at the end of it, no one is happy. There's no joy in it. It's just this weightedness that people are just doing over and over again, and there's no benefit that draws out of it. And so when he looks at it and he goes, why should I exchange this career to pursue this kind of religion where all that I get is just burden, responsibility, without the benefit? Where's that life-givingness? Where's that power? Where's that joy? Where's that desire? Where's that change? Because whenever the Pharisees look at other people and they're not committed to showing up. They're not committed to giving their offering. They're not committed to uh, their righteous rules that they've set up. They just judge. The only good thing that you can expect is not be judged according to this religious sect of the Pharisees. And Matthew says, why should I want that? And sometimes for us, we look around us and we look at our church friends and then we look at our non-church friends. And sometimes if we're honest, we feel like there's more joy, even though we might be doing things wrong, right? Or maybe uh, we're like, you know, pushing the boundaries in terms of morality or ethics in, in certain ways. But we feel like with our unchurched friends, at least there's joy, right? At least there's fun. At least there's some benefit that we get out of it. But when I'm with like a church community or with my church friends, it just feels like everyone's judging. Or it just feels like everyone's finger pointing. Or we have to act a certain way. And there's no benefit. There's all service without the benefit. And what was Matthew looking for? I think what Matthew was looking for was change. If we believe that Jesus is Christ and he makes a difference, then he looks at himself and he says, despite 
the wrongs that I've done. I made a lot of money off of it because part of a tax collector, the way that they made money is they, if the tax was 10% that was owed to the Roman government, they would charge everyone 12% and they would keep the, um, the remains to themselves. And so for Matthew, he's looking at it and he goes, yeah, I know that I'm wrong. I know that I'm bad. But for someone like me, a sinner, someone who's dismissed by his own people, is there any hope? Is there any joy? That's the question. And the first time he meets Jesus, he says, come follow me. For the first, it unlocks something in him and it reveals to him and it pulls him into this new reality. This old reality that he sees through the Pharisees and the old reality that he sees through his own workplace. And there's no hope in there. Even though he can get benefits from time to time, there's no hope. There's no something better. There's no truer reality. But then as soon as he meets Jesus, he has this glimpse for the first time. Can this be a new community? And so the very first thing that Matthew does is he pulls that reality in into his present and he finds all of his sinner friends, all of his tax collector friends, and says, come, meet the true Christ. Not the ones that you see through the Pharisees. The ones that love you. The ones that called me and said, this is the fellowship. This is the new hope. This is the new reality that God has called us to. See, in Jesus, Matthew saw Jesus pulling in this new reality into this present time where Matthew can say, it's not just in the future that we hope that in heaven everything was going to be okay and community is going to be good. He says, even here, we can begin to taste and see what that heaven reality is going to be. Now, the third point that uh, we see of what Jesus does with the truth, the truth that pulls us in the here and now. Look at Matthew 9, 14 to 15. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. I don't know what your, your experience has been living as Christians trying to trying to follow the best that you can. But I know that for me, one of the things that I grew up with was this thinking of, all right, we don't experience it here, but we have eternal life. The whole goal of the Christian life was eternal life, something that we will never see until we die, which is kind of like, you know, a gamble almost, where we're not quite sure whether it's real or not, but as, at least we can put our insurance in. But this kind of whole mindset about eternity, something that happens way back there. So for now, what do we do? It's just a waiting period where we just wait for that final maybe to happen. And what Matthew is experiencing here is he's saying, yes, it's not fully. When God says, my kingdom has come, it's begun to inaugurate here through Jesus Christ. He's saying, yes, it may not be fully where there's no more sin anymore as what's going to be in heaven, but he says it begins 
here and now. You don't wait for it for the future. It begins here. You see, for the Pharisees, they were going up, uh, the John's disciples were going up to Jesus' disciples and saying, hey, why aren't you guys fasting? We're doing this practice. We're carrying our weight. So why aren't you as serious as we are about religiosity? Why aren't you as serious as we are about wanting God's kingdom to come? And Jesus answers them by saying this, why are you fasting now when the reality that you hope for can be experienced now? In other words, is this, why are you fasting now? You're going into your own place and being your own self-righteous person. But look at Matthew. Matthew invited all of his sinner friends over to his house to celebrate. Because Jesus is present. Because Jesus is here. But for the rest of you, you're always looking into the future saying that I'm hoping that this will come. And we just need to wait. And we just need to, you know, keep these rules. We need to just keep these laws. And then finally, in the end, we'll receive our reward. And Jesus says, no, it's now. The truth, it pulls us in into the now. We celebrate now. We live it out now. We do it now. You know, sometimes for us, we just wait. Jesus says in, in, that, in that kind of waiting, he says, is it not the sick that need a doctor and not the righteous? And sometimes it, it makes us just stall in our Christian life or in our desire to follow Jesus because we just feel like, hey, there's nothing I can do now, so I might as well just wait, just pray, and hope that that thing will come. And he goes, no, you are needed now. Practice it now and you will begin to see Jesus transforming your heart. You'll begin to see this power that infuses you more than what you thought you were capable of doing. You know, it's not about just routines. He says it's about seeing a glimpse of what you believe should be true if Jesus is Christ. And if that should be true, then that's how we begin living now in community with one another in our relationship with the world. Now here's the last point that I wanna make. Even though the truth will always pull us, there's this kind of force that negates that pull. And we always have a choice either to listen to Jesus who invites us, Jesus says come and follow me and taking that risk to the other voice in our life that tries to push back on it, that tries to negate any good that Jesus wants to do in our life, but also telling us it's okay, just like the Pharisees, also telling us that you are still in God's kingdom. It negates any power, it negates any change, it negates any transformation in our life. And this is why, brothers and sisters, even though we say that we're following Jesus and Jesus is Lord of my life, this is why sometimes we don't feel it, we don't sense it, we don't experience it in our life because we negate that invitation that the Spirit brings to us. See, Jesus mentions why certain people have a hard time seeing who God really is and expecting their life to be transformed by that encounter. Look how he explains it to the Pharisees. He says this. 
He says, no one sows in, in uh, 9.16, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. You know, the negating force that we have in our life, Jesus says, there, there are two ways that we do it. And the first one is this. We try to, he says, think of it like a piece of clothing that you're so used to and you're always wearing, and it's your favorite clothing. It's your always go-to, and then you wear it. But the thing is, you tore. We'll just say we tore a certain section of our, fa- of our favorite jacket. And because we tore it, what we're trying to do is we're trying to mend it because we want to keep this jacket on. So instead of finding a piece of common, old, weathered garment that is like our garment that we have worn, we find something new to patch it on with. What he is talking about is he's just saying, look at your life in general. Your life is what you're used to. Your life is what you're used to wearing, and you've and you gotten comfortable with it, and you like it. But the thing is, as you live through life, you find certain holes that begin to happen. As you live through life, you find that there are certain needs that can't be fulfilled by what the world has to offer. And you feel like, oh, there's a hole there, and I want to fill it. And for some of us, we meet Christ because of that. We come to church because of that. I need to fill this gap in my life, whether it's relational, whether it's mental, whether it's physical, whether it's financial. In any area, we're saying there's this hole that nothing else in the world really fills, and so I want to patch it up. But what we do... As Jesus says, you should replace the whole jacket. He talks about it as a, when you're trying to pour new wine into old wineskin, it'll burst. And he says, in the same way, you need a brand new wineskin in order to hold that fermenting process, that, that expanding process. But what we do, he says, is we keep the old because we're comfortable with it. And we try to patch on certain aspects of faith. Some of us may have come to Christ because we're lonely and we're seeking community. And the way that we're late with people, it remains the same. We have our old jacket on and we feel lonely all the time that there's a hole that forms in that relational bond. And so we're saying, I need community. I need to know that I'm loved. And so to fill that patch, we go to church and we look for a new community there and we take these rules that The Bible says, love one another. Love as if you're loving yourself. And we take that, and rather than changing this whole thing where we understand that Christ needs to be Lord first in order for this to work together, what we do instead is we keep the old and we patch on the new. We patch on, I just expect now that these people here in this new group that I'm with are Christians and they say that they're followers of Christ, I expect that need to be met by sewing on that new patch that in this community, I'll willingly come out once a week. And if I come out, I expect me not to be lonely. I expect me, people to care for me. I expect people to treat me in a certain way. And we patch that onto our old. And because our old is still there, it begins to tear away from the new. He describes it as this, the new, 
the new patch, because it's unshrunken, it begins to shrink and it tears at the old garment. It's because the old is stronger. You know, brothers and sisters, sometimes in our life, the old that we have in our life, it's so overpowering. It's still there that even no matter how many times we go to church and we try to patch on this kind of new way of living, because the old is there, this new patch that we put on, it just shrinks to the old. It gets smaller and smaller, and we feel like it's not effective. In fact, it's ruining all the other relationships that I had because now I'm trying to like, you know, balance both. And not only that, the power and the influence of that new patch seems less significant. It seems nothing changes. It seems same old. What's the difference between church community and non-church community? Because it ruined everything. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying is that he's saying we negate the lordship of Christ in our life when we forget to change the whole jacket because we're just trying to patch on the new. So do you know what happens? Do you know what the second thing that we do? He says, so you have two choices then. Number one, keep your old jacket and go back to patching on your old things. And I find that's what some people do, is they keep their old jacket and they go from this church community to this church community to this church community looking for something that will patch on, but nothing has changed. See, the challenge that all of us have is considering when we say that we want to follow Jesus Christ and we want to experience this truth that compels us, at the heart of it, he says, as Jesus announced the kingdom come, he says, repent. He first says, lay down. He says, surrender. For the kingdom of heaven is near. And I imagine, brothers and sisters, that's one of the hardest things that we have. Just like when we see Peter, Andrew, James, and John at the boat. Before they followed Jesus, they had to surrender that life in order to follow. For Matthew as well, he had to surrender this lucrative finances in order to follow each one of us, if we're going to answer that question that Jesus Christ is Lord, if we really want to understand what that is, each one of us, you're not going to be forced, but you will know what area of your life has mastery over you. It's that jacket that you're most comfortable with. And Jesus says a patchwork won't help. No matter how well you do it, no matter how well you try to tailor it, it won't help. Repentance always comes first. That surrendering of that jacket comes first. Now the promise is this. He says you don't walk away with nothing where you just surrender that and now you have nothing and you walk away with nothing. He says what we have, he says, I've come and this is the promise that he gives in John 10.10. 10. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. In other words, drawing out that new reality 
in each one of us, that new identity in each one of us that we know is there, but we don't know exactly how to access it. That's the promise that he gives. Brothers and sisters, as we continue in in this series and in this new year, I pray that as the Holy Spirit begins to invite us, may we learn what that one area may be of surrender. May we trust him with it. And as we surrender it, may we see him doing that, that work in filling us and satisfying our very being because of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are God, that you know us, that you created us, you know our needs. Lord, I pray that as each one of us in the course of how we live throughout our weekday, when you show up, it'll be the right time for you to show up. But when you show up, Lord, and you begin to prompt our hearts in a certain way, may we abide by it. May we listen to it. May we repent. May we lay down and trust you, Lord. May we not just try to do patchwork, but instead, Lord, may we surrender and to see this life that you call, that you have come, that we might have life and begin to experience it to the full. Thank you, Father, for that promise. And I pray, will each one of these precious sons and daughters of yours here in this place experience that in their everyday life. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.